0: Hello, I'm your host, Olivia Braffman, and welcome to If She Can, I Can, the podcast that aims to edge us ambitious women that little bit closer to figuring out how to navigate both the fulfilling career and the family we desire. And well, challenge is the role we're supposed to play in it all. Each week, I'm gonna be talking to the inspiring women who, in their own special way, have done just that. Let's get into it. In this episode, I am joined by the inspirational Lauren Arms, who I personally have admired for so many years, business coach and mentor to some of the leading wellness specialists in the industry, podcast host herself of experts, and founder of the incredible business Well to Do which was born from a passion project and grown into what is now the go-to global industry network platform for wellness news, careers, events, thought leadership, and more. Lauren has featured personally in every top publication I can think of for her wellness industry wisdom and advice, and she is an all-round champion of people in the industry fulfilling their potential and building successful businesses that they love. And having achieved so much Lauren recently wrote that the best year of her life is the year just gone since she became a mother to her gorgeous son, um, which I'm keen to dig into a little bit more. Lauren Arms, welcome to If She Can, I Can. It is such a pleasure to have you. Oh, what a beautiful introduction. Thank you so much, Olivia. And it's such a pleasure to be here on your awesome new show. I wanted to start by taking it back a little bit. So you are from my, my second home, Australia. Talk to me a little bit about your younger years and how you think that shaped you into the person that you are today.
1: Mm, juicy question, cool, Yes. Yeah, so I grew up in a very small country town in New South Wales, the state of Australia. Uh, I guess it's what we would describe as being in the middle of nowhere. Um, I think the population of the town I grew up in was about 12,000 people and my dad was the head teacher of the local primary school at which I attended with my brothers, um, two older brothers. Um, My mum was primarily a stay-at-home mum but a trained teacher as well and occasionally she would be a... A um, uh, stand-in teacher if one of our teachers was off sick, and so my mum would be the teacher for the day. And so, yeah, just a really lovely, wholesome upbringing. We uh, had a very um, wonderful, loving, and stable family home. We lived relatively simply in a kind of middle class family environment um lots of very uh outdoor focused lifestyle activities our holidays since my teachers uh, my parents were teachers were spent camping and when I say camping sometimes I think people don't actually know what I'm talking about I'm talking about proper rough camping like no bells and whistles, very much kind of tent by the fire, cooking our own meals, barefoot running through, you know, what we call, again, the bush, like maybe the woods in the UK. I've got to learn to kind of translate things sometimes. And, um, yeah, it was a beautiful, beautiful upbringing. Uh, We were always taught to work hard. We were always taught to... um, to lean into our gifts and we were encouraged in our creative pursuits. Uh, I was a very, very ambitious child right from the get go. So, um, very high expectations for myself. My mum jokes, and she said this in her wedding speech that. Uh, I would cry if I coloured outside of the lines, and she was uh, a, a primary school teacher, and she says I was the only five-year-old who would get upset if I if my triangles weren't perfectly um, balanced in in their side lengths, and so you can kind of get a sense from from that that. At a young age, I was very ambitious and uh, had a great sense within myself of achievement um, and it became an important part of my identity growing up, that I would be a high achiever, that I would be the best at what I do, that uh, if I wasn't, I'd be beating myself up and um, And, you know, as most of us are, my worst critic. Um, At the age of 12, I suppose I moved to the Gold Coast, which for anybody who's been to Australia knows is akin to paradise. Um, We lived by the beach uh, and it was a definite upgrade from kind of living in the Wild West and kind of a dusty um, outdoor uh, town and um and that was wonderful you know i um i I had wonderful uh, memories of living on the gold coast and swimming in the ocean and again just really wholesome time Um, But at first opportunity, I moved to the city. So at 17, about to turn 18, I moved out of home, having finished school and went to live in Brisbane in a city in Queensland uh, to study. And uh, I'm sure it doesn't come as a shock that I, I really pushed myself to study full time. And at the same time, I worked full time um, as well. So those kind of formative years where most uh, university students are kind of out partying and going to toga parties and goodness knows what else. I spent really pursuing the, the formative years of my career um, and found myself uh, to quite Um, uh, In in a fortunate position where the first company that I worked for actually subsidized or paid for my university degree whilst giving me the experience of working within the organization um, in different aspects of, of business which I suppose really cemented for me that I wanted to work in the world of business and I wanted to live and um, uh, pursue my career in a busy city. And um, yeah, I don't know how far you want me to go, Olivia, but that, that kind of set me up for, I suppose, the initial uh, ambitions that I had in building businesses and working in business was actually – having the opportunity to work in all aspects of a successful privately owned family business is my first
0: job really I mean how incredible and here you are with a fire in your belly to sort of achieve you've got this first stint in business you're learning loads you're probably seeing every aspect of how things are run you know, what were you thinking back then in terms of where it would take you It's so interesting because I was not
1: the kid who always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I was ambitious, but I think my idea of success was obviously, and for for all of us, contextualized by what I knew. And I didn't know any entrepreneurs growing up. My parents, as I said, were teachers. Um, Anyone I knew who worked in business, in inverted commas, Uh, worked for somebody else. And so, you know, success for me in business was actually more defined by a feeling. It was having, um, you know, a sense of power and being busy and uh, progressing. And like, I imagined myself in a power suit with a blackberry and being busy going to meetings. And, you know, that for me was like exciting and the thrill of, of being in business. Uh, But it didn't come until I moved to London, this idea of being an entrepreneur, uh, because, you know, frankly, Australia, albeit uh, a wonderful place to grow up, is quite removed from the rest of the world. And I think maybe in more recent years, entrepreneurship is a a more burgeoning um, uh, identity for young people to pursue. But for me, I thought I would always work for somebody else. And um so it's funny because I was in this perfect playground to be learning about business but for some reason and it's weird now to to reflect on it for some reason it didn't spark in me the ambition to be the owner of the business. It certainly sparked in me the desire to perhaps be the CEO or work my way to the top, but this idea of starting something from scratch completely eluded me and Partially, I think that and this is probably what gets in the way for lots of people is I didn't have a big idea. I didn't have a dream that I was going to create the world's first whatever, you know, caffeine free coffee or innovate in some capacity within an existing industry. I didn't have a a clear ambition to start something of my own. Um, that actually came, came much later, actually, even after I'd
0: started um, the first iteration of my business well to do. Gosh. And so you mentioned, you know, everything really started when you made the transition to London, what, eight, nine years ago? How long ago was it? Yeah, nine
1: years ago. Crazy. Wow. I, I default to saying like five or six years ago. And then I realized that actually, it's like almost nine years.
0: Yeah, that's outdated. I can't say that anymore. Yeah. Um, gosh, so almost a decade. What instigated this sort of moving to the other side of the world, life-changing shift? Why did you come to London and was it for the career? Was, was that a kind of catalyst?
1: Yeah, I mean, I studied international business and marketing, and so there was a definite part of me that thought, okay, to fully realize that ambition, you know, it'd be wonderful to go and live and work abroad. Uh, I'd been to London once before on holiday and swore that I would never live in such a cold place. I remember standing on London Bridge, which... um, I remember thinking, oh, is this London Bridge? Because, of course, you have Tower Bridge, the next bridge, over, which is a beautiful, amazing, you know, statement bridge. And London Bridge is actually quite boring. But I vividly remember this moment of standing on London Bridge in the freezing cold in January, thinking I would never move to a country that is this cold. And a few years later, I did. Um, And the reason really, and this sounds super silly, was that, as you know, um, as a young Australian under the age of 30, you get a two year visa to come and live and work in the UK. It's very easy to apply. I felt like London would be a really nice sort of epicenter of possibility and opportunity and also travel and adventure to Europe. And so you know i think i'd ended a relationship and i'd been working for the company that i'd been sponsored by for you know 6 or my 7 years which at the age of gosh 26 was quite a long standing career um, loyalty to a, to one business uh, and i just felt like it was time for a change so packed my bags Sold my car, had very little savings in my pocket and decided to go and live and work abroad for a couple of years. And that was
0: the intention for it to be, you know, two years and then I'd go home. And look at what's happened. It's always the way this is the same (laughs) as when British people go to Australia, everyone goes for a year and then 10 years later, they're like, huh, how did this happen? So very common, I'm sure the other way around. So you, you moved to London you you start this passion project probably not thinking where it could take you at what point do you realize actually I can pursue this this can be my career this can be my sole purpose I don't have to have another job outside of this when did that happen
1: yeah good question so uh I I suppose a year and a half into my time in London realized that um, to be honest, I realised that I was this little fish in a big pond of very intelligent, successful, qualified, credible people. And um, this probably sounds again slightly, um, slightly silly, but in Australia, I'd always felt a sense of being at the top of my game. I'd graduated top of my my degree cohort. I had ascended into this extremely high-ranked role in the company that I worked for as international sales manager at the age of 26. And, you know, it felt like I'd reached this like pinnacle of my career. And when I moved to London, I started applying for jobs and being rejected or not hearing back and thinking, oh, wow, like this is harder than I thought. You know, I thought I was actually really smart and whatever, like probably a little bit big headed. Um, And it actually grounded me quite a lot. And it made me realize that I may not be able to access the experience in London that I thought I would. It felt like I had to kind of start again. And I found myself in these sort of like middle management roles that were fairly unfulfilling and fairly – you know really lacked like alignment of values and passion and just relatively uninspiring and so I guess I at the same time was starting to notice this community of entrepreneurs in London and you know, London is an incredible city. You can do anything you want any night of the week. You can be anybody you want to be. And here I was with full permission to build this new identity for myself in a country where I had no friends or family. Everything was new. And so I started going to kind of entrepreneurial events. I started meeting other young people starting businesses. And I was like, wow, you mean I don't have to aspire to like be my company director in 20 years time, which of course I didn't. Um, This could be a cool path to follow. You know, I know stuff about business and marketing. Maybe I could start my own thing. And this like realm of possibility entered into my world. Uh, And it was exciting. Uh, And so I, I guess to marry that, like I said before, I didn't have a clear idea of a business that I wanted to start, but I had areas of interest So I spent hour upon hour upon hour taking notes and journaling and researching and exploring these different passion paths. And this one thing that kept coming up for me was wellness. And I felt like I'd come from a country where wellness is a very inherent part of the lifestyle to the extent that at the time, seven or eight years ago, people in Australia weren't talking about wellness, you know, they just got up, got out, went for a run, had a swim, had an acai bowl by the beach and, you know, a turmeric latte. And that was actually just normal. Uh, And in London, what I was noticing is that it was a trend, right? So I'm identifying these trends in indoor cycling studios opening up and literally the first indoor cycling studio akin to a Soul Cycle opened on Mortimer Street. And I thought, that's interesting. You know, some of these trends from the US and from Australia are starting to proliferate the London or UK market. Juice bars were opening, healthy products were starting to emerge in the market, and it feels ridiculous talking about it now as if it was something new, because it's such a huge industry, as I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, But seven, eight, nine years ago, nobody was talking about wellness. I remember um, trying to explain wellness to my my mother-in-law and you know, her saying, oh, is that kind of like yoga and, you know, sort of hessian bags and a hippie kind of lifestyle. And that was the perceived definition of wellness. Uh, And it's just evolved so quickly. But at the time I thought, "Okay, well, maybe I want to start a business in wellness. And so on the side of my full time job, I started writing about wellness, and I started a really crappy WordPress blog. I called it Well to Do London, and the idea was that I would document, you know, interesting lifestyle um, options within the city of London that, if you're interested in wellness, you might be interested to know about. And it was very lifestyle oriented. And yeah, to your to your question, which you know, I'm sort of a long winded way of answering it. I didn't know that it would become the business. I thought that by interviewing and talking to and building relationships with other entrepreneurs within the wellness industry, that eventually I would stumble upon my big idea. I would eventually decide, oh, I'm going to whatever. Like I toyed with all sorts of things starting an organic coffee brand, starting an organic tampon brand, starting, you know, all these things that now exist. I sort of entertained and modeled business models and talked with people and explored and at the same time writing about these trends. And eventually I was like, hey, like I'm not surely the only one thinking about starting a business in wellness. At the time, it was a $3 trillion industry globally. It's now, you know, 4.5 or something crazy, 5.2 or something. The statistics keep keep kind of catapulting. But, you know, I, I think I realized at some point And it was around the time that I decided I was completely fed up with my job and that I was willing and able and in a position to take a risk in my life that I'd give it a punt and see whether I could turn well-to-do into a business. And I kind of looked at a couple of other examples of industry publications within other industries like fashion and so on. And I figured, you know, every industry needs a central platform for intel and insight and documentation of industry growth, maybe there's an opportunity here for something like that in wellness. And so quit my job and and started to really pursue building it
0: as a full-time full time gig. And it's so nice to hear that you didn't just sort of have the light bulb moment that I think so many people are expecting is just sort of going to sort of happen to them. But actually, it's the small things you do, the incremental changes that are just slowly working yourself towards that dream or goal that you've got. And it's, you know, it's, it's nice to hear a perfect example of, Of how that's happened, not for me, (laughs) sadly. It takes time. It takes time. So fast forward a number of years, you've grown this incredible business. You've now got offshoots of the business from events. You're you're looking at careers. You're doing your your coaching business as well. I kind of look at you and think you've you've built a brand from a business perspective, but also you are a brand in in your own right. You know, in many ways, and. I've seen you make grace many a stages and people want you and they want to hear your wisdom and your advice. When you then decide, okay, I want to start a family now. What's going through your head when you think how that shift might impact this incredible business empire that you've built?
1: Yeah, um, terror and fear and doubt and Uh, concern and um, lots of emotions, excitement and leaning into the unknown. I guess it was an interesting time when Jamie, my husband and I started thinking about starting a family because it was the very early um, part of a global pandemic. And so a lot of other aspects of our life had been called into question including aspects of our business model and so as well as asking myself how would it impact us to have a child I was also assessing and pivoting within a business context in an environment where we could no longer run our in-person events where we could no longer travel into our office in London and so you know In many ways, I'm very grateful to the pandemic because it enabled us to really reassess our values around the type of business that we wanted to build. And I've always been a big believer that you start with your lifestyle goals and then you build a business around that. Unless, for example, you're building a business that your sole driver is to build and multiply and then sell. In which case, you know, sometimes there are different objectives involved. But when you're building a business around a lifestyle and, you know, we watched a program on TV last night and it was all about this couple who had moved to the Lake District in the in the UK to escape their busy corporate lives and open a bakery. And what happened is they end up working longer hours, seven days a week, trying to get this bakery off the ground and never see each other because he's baking the bread at night and she's running the shop. And it's like, you've got to ask yourself hard questions when you start a business around whether it's going to support the life that you want to live. So I often say to clients, you know, well, if your dream is to open a gym, Be prepared that if you're someone who likes traveling, that for the first few years, you're probably not going to be able to do a lot of traveling. So actually, does it make more sense for you to have something more online? So with all of this in mind, the pandemic strikes and we're having conversations about having a baby and and I'm thinking, okay, well, we need to pivot our events online. We need to become much more digitally savvy in the way that we deliver our value and our expertise, because the current environment you know economic environment and logistical um, circumstances require us to do that but there's a blessing in disguise here for us which is it's much more conducive to having a family and my priorities start to shift and I say to myself well you know as a new mom am I going to want to traipse into London every day to a fancy office on Mortimer Street which we had at the time And, uh, you know, is that going to be a priority for me in the future? And a lot of that got called into question before I actually even conceived. And as it turned out, once we found out that we were having Lockie and, you know, he's just turned one for a little bit of context, um, you know, we had already made some or started to make some pretty important decisions that would set us up for family life in a way that felt good for us which you know I'm sure we'll get into in more detail but for me it was important that I'd still be able to work that I'd still be able to run my business that I'd still be able to have my identity as Lauren Arms and not just as you know as mum
0: yeah and I think that's so critical to people and I speak to lots of people about this and often people that instinctively are planners so everything's normally just mapped out and planned. And then suddenly you, you you have a child and everything's sort of somewhat thrown up in the air and you do your absolute best to sort of plan this. And sometimes you can't even plan when you're going to have a child because the journey is the journey that you, you sort of go on. Of so you have your son, you're gorgeous, Lockie. How did you then approach it? So what was the reality? Did you take time off away from the business? There's this pressure that, particularly when you're a brand that in your own right that's in demand, you've got this pressure to sort of show up. What was the reality for you just after you've had your your child?
1: Yeah, so I will caveat my answer by saying that I think as women, it's so important that we reserve judgment against one another for how you choose to do it, right? And that we also set ourselves up for motherhood to not fall victim to the waves of guilt associated with modern day parenting and the multiple obligations that women tend to juggle. So I decided before I had Lockie that I wouldn't ever feel guilty for the way that I wanted to do things. And I should say we because, you know, my husband and Jamie and I, we work together, we run a business together, and our ambition was to co-parent in a very equal dynamic as far as time, as well as you know, capacity and emotional and whatever you know, and and there are different ways to describe equality in parenting. Sometimes one is earning the money and the other is doing the logistics, and that's equal in lo- in in its own way. Our definition of equal was always going to be, you know, equal parts time availability for him in caring for him and being available to him in these early years of his life. And so we set ourselves up for that. So we, um, you know, we made some decisions and we, I know I asked myself like, how much time would I want to take off? And so when I share what did happen after he gave birth, none of it comes from a place of necessity. Like I never felt like I had to go back to work. I chose to do those things and I chose to do it without judgment of myself and without feeling any guilt. So interestingly, we were looking the other day and it's almost a year to date that we're celebrating our nanny starting with us, Vicky, and she is an absolute angel and godsend. And she actually started a year ago in August, which means, and I'd forgotten this, that she started working with us when Lockie was six weeks old, which might shock some of your listeners frankly like that might feel like a like a a very early time to start having somebody support you with childcare. um but my I guess another another caveat is that Lockie was actually two and a half weeks late so around the time of his birth I cleared my entire schedule and then I kind of sat twiddling my thumbs for two and a half weeks whilst we waited for him to show up and so due dates are such a a misnomer and such a um um such a I guess you know inconsistent thing I think five percent or two percent of babies are born on their due date um and so at six weeks we had a nanny come to support us for three hours a day three days a week so just a small contribution she had another family that she was looking after And it was about building a relationship with her and building up to this time where I would be able to work more. And at first it wasn't about going back to work. It was just about having some time and space. And I felt, you know, we felt that that was a priority for us. We felt it was a valuable investment that I'd seen lots of women kind of get lost in the identity of, you know, changing nappies and feeding a crying baby and, I decided that I didn't want my full-time identity to be being a mum, that I felt that I deserved to have some support and a village around me. And I guess it's important to note too that my mum was in Australia and it was a pandemic and so she couldn't come over. My parents couldn't come over and so I was, albeit with the support of my in-laws, largely kind of on my own. Um, And so having Vicky and having a nanny is... um, As we did was just a really nice support structure to have in place from early on to make sure that, you know, um, it wasn't all on me and it wasn't all on Jamie and that we had this sense of like a village around us really supporting us to adjust to life as new parents. Um, our team really stepped up. Uh, I'm so fortunate in that one of my core team members, my assistant, um, Kat has two kids. So she was like forewarning me of how things would be. And she was like, Lauren, you're going to want to, ske- you know, clear your schedule for a good couple of months. Like, don't think you're going to be able to just go back to work straight away. Like, that's just not the reality. And even though I was contesting it in my mind, she was hundred percent right. So I kind of needed that person in my court to say, you know, you need to prepare for this um, so that you can enjoy it, but also feel
0: really supported as well. I think that's so important. I think, you know, part of the, the benefit of being an entrepreneur is that you're creating these rules yourself. But then that also comes with what are the rules that you need to create to sort of if you work in the corporate world, these things are designed for you. There's no choice. If, if you're in this job and you work for this company you get this much time paid leave, this much time off, we'll see you in this many months time or whatever it is. And that's just what you sign up for, you know, potentially years before you even go on that journey. I think there's probably a, a lot of women out there that have this burgeoning desire that they want to be an entrepreneur, they want to work for themselves, but the corporate world is almost a safety net to transition into motherhood in because you have that security and stability around you when you're going through what is a a huge unknown and life-changing thing what would your advice be to those women that are sticking within the safety net of corporate purely with the transition into motherhood in mind versus going for it being the entrepreneur and and figuring it out in, in a less stable environment but potentially a more fulfilling one?
1: Oh, such a big question. Um, There's no playbook for this, right? Like my advice is only going to be based on my experience. Um, I think the biggest question mark for anyone with this conversation going on in their head is what's my appetite for risk and what am I willing to sacrifice in order to have, quote unquote, it all? Um, For me, having it all was having the flexibility to work if I want to slash have to. And if I don't being at home, like I I've been able to, for example, um, breastfeed Lockie for a year and still and I'm still feeding him three times a day. And I have that that blessing or that opportunity, because of the way that I've set up my life to run my business from home. Now, some women might get the opportunity to work from home, and you know there are wonderful people campaigning for flexibility for parents in the workplace. And I think that's that's going to be a critical part of this conversation. And it's not something that I'm an expert on. Um, to answer your question, you know, I had been working on my business for five years before this conversation around having a baby took place. So there were definitely years to create the foundations for me to feel a relative sense of financial security to then have a family and feel quite supported. We had a team in place. We had, um, you know, existing revenue streams that weren't reliant on me. Um, There were some elements that there was pressure for me to return to because I am a face of the business and an important part of delivery. But uh, there were also, to be frank, Olivia, you know, sacrifices. And that's why I say, like, ask yourself, what's your appetite for risk, but also what sacrifices are you willing to make to have it all? Um, Because albeit it sounds very luxurious and glamorous to have a nanny come and start working for you after eight weeks. That's not because we have endless buckets of cash to throw at problems to solve them. That was a, a compromise that we decided to make on other areas of our life in order to have the scenario and the setup that felt most supportive to us. So it came at the sacrifice of other things that we may have wanted to spend our money on, you know, um, to have that as a support pillar and a paid support pillar for us to live the life that we have now. So I suppose you really do have to check in with yourself. Um, And when I left my job, my secure, well-paying job, I had to feel a greater level of fear in staying where I was, trapped and unfulfilled and dissatisfied. Then the fear that I faced in figuring out how to run a successful business that would support me for the future and support me through having a family and eventually support me through being able to, you know, um, have my husband resign from his full time job and come and work in the business as well. You know, we worked really hard for that and we made a lot of sacrifices along the way that somebody else might not be willing to make. And so if it's important for you to have, you know, the latest clothes and fashion accessories and handbags and go on lavish holidays, but you also want to run your own or start your own business and have a family, there might be a little bit of incongruency there. And that's why I invite you to, to ask yourself, you know, are there things that I'd be willing to give up in order to create the future that I desire for myself and some of those things are short-lived sacrifices you know like we don't have to live like that anymore but there were definitely periods of time where we gave up a lot of of you know the things that other people may have had in order to set ourselves up for the lifestyle that we yeah that we now have and dreamed of where literally you know Jamie and I both work from home we spend Fridays off with our boy we have Aunt Nanny now do for almost full de- full days a week. Um, but in the afternoons, we kind of spend that time with Lockie. We get to see him at lunchtime. You know, we get to see him come in and out of his play dates. And, you know, it's a really beautiful life that we've created where we have a lot of accessibility to him and where I never felt like going back to work meant never being able to see him or having to drop him at nursery. Um he has such beautiful care. Like Vicky is like a family member. He, um, yeah, he, he has a beautiful life and we're very much a part of it. But I also get to really live my dream as building a, a business and being an entrepreneur at the same time. Um, but I guess my overarching um, consideration with that is that it didn't come without sacrifice and it didn't come without risk. And I have an appetite for risk uh, that maybe not all people uh, are
0: going to have. And look, there's a risk in doing something. There's a risk in doing nothing. So it's just what risk is bigger. You can't de-risk everything. And I think you've sort of broken the myth of if you work for yourself, you're working double the hours and therefore you're sacrificing time with your family. And actually, to your point, it's. As soon as you can really know yourself, what are the values that you want to live by? What is the lifestyle you want to create? And whether it's a corporate job or your own business, how, how do those things cater to that? Because actually you're probably able to spend more quality time with your son than a lot of people would dream of because they just don't have the flexibility. It's just really around creating that that for yourself and and, mm-hmm. and looking within and, and figuring out what that is. And I, that's probably the, a key takeaway that... I'm I'm learning, and and I think you've spoken about this. As an entrepreneur, you you get stuck in the numbers, so you're obsessed with numbers. You're obsessed with growth. There's endless lists. There's no end or beginning to a day. It's just a constant flow, it can be all-consuming. And I think a lot of people define success when they're starting out a business as. <laughs> the bigger the bigger number or the certain growth potential that they're trying to hit how has your view on your own success changed in the last year massively so success for
1: me before Lockie was very much defined by the numbers and the constant growth trajectory and if we weren't on a growth trajectory I felt unhappy and unfulfilled And that's a dangerous territory because the reality of business is that you're not always growing, that there are peaks and troughs and that it's a bit of a roller coaster ride and that sometimes, you know, a backwards step or a downward trajectory when you're innovating or creating is a good thing. Um, which I've, you know, I've learned about through the journey. But I don't think I realized until after I had Lockie and I started to assess my priorities, how heavily defined my happiness was by success in the business. And so to illustrate that, if somebody asked me, how are you, Lauren? What I would hear in my internal translation was, how is the business going? And so I realized that actually, My whole life was defined by how successful well-to-do was, how well it was growing, how clear I was on the growth, how much I was personally growing, how well our team was performing, how well our, you know, product delivery was, service delivery and so on. And then this little human comes along and you're like, whoa, I need to, or not I need to, like my priorities and my sense of happiness is completely shifted and suddenly they are the only thing that matters they are the source of your happiness they shift your perception around what happiness really is and all you crave is just those joyous little moments of like having a cuddle on in the bed and on a random Wednesday morning or like playing in the dirt and like noticing a little ant crawling by and you're like, who is this person I've become? <laughs> like my meaning of happiness is completely transformed. Um, a big part of my happiness came from how much money we were making. And that's a like a vulnerable truth for me to share. Um, and it's not that it doesn't matter anymore, but what I have learned and and I read a beautiful book recently called the happiness advantage and not only is it now proven scientifically but I can feel this in my in my body and in my essence of who I am now it's been proven that success doesn't come first and then you're happy and this sounds so obvious right like but we so often do it that way we think well as soon as I build a successful business, I'm going to be happy, or as soon as I hit this milestone, I'm going to be happy, or as soon as I make this amount of money, I'm going to be happy. And all of the science and research in, in behavioral psychology now shows, and, and the psychology of happiness, is that you've got to be happy first, and then success follows. And so I realized that I needed to feel happy even when I wasn't working. I needed to feel happy even when the business wasn't growing. I needed to feel happy even when I wasn't in this identity of being the person speaking on the stage or doing all the things because I no longer had necessarily time to prioritize all of those things and I didn't want to. Um, But part of me felt dissatisfied. And it was this weird contradiction because I had this amazing, precious little being in my life, but I felt a sense of unhappiness. And it was because the wrong things had defined my happiness um, and I hadn't noticed until I had to pause and stop in this chapter of motherhood Uh, because there's a lot of like solitariness in feeding and the hours that you're awake at night and you do a lot of reflection in those moments of pushing and pushing a baby in a pram and rocking a baby to sleep. Uh, And I think that I got a new perspective that has allowed me to realize that my business still matters and it's still a big part of who I am. But I can now feel a sense of gratitude and happiness in such a simple existence. I don't need a lot anymore to be happy. I need my family to be healthy. I need a roof over my head. I need food and water, you know, like if everything else was taken away, I now feel very connected to my sense of intrinsic happiness and and contentment in my life. And I don't think I had that before because I was just so busy chasing big goals and success, thinking that eventually that would make me
0: happy. What an amazing lesson to have learned, having gone through that process, because I think there are people that put off, having children because I think well I've got to get to this stage in my career or my life and then I can give it up or or sacrifice part of that for for having a family but actually from even just that one takeaway of shifting how you view happiness and just being happy as a person and, and shifting that focus in within itself is such an incredible gift to have got from going through that process. And it kind of leads me on to my next question, which is thinking back to wellness, you've continued obviously see your business in, in that world and, and you talk to clients and you talk publicly about people maximizing their potential and being the best version of themselves. And as we know now, wellness creeps into absolutely every aspect of our life. How do you feel that your wellness has positively or, or negatively been impacted by becoming a mother?
1: Yeah, I mean, you just have a lot less time, don't you? Like, it's just a big shift. Um, And as a result, wellness perhaps in my life is a little less prescriptive and a little less structured so for example where before exercise was going to my local fitness studio and doing a resistance class now exercise is pushing Lockie up to the high street to pick up some groceries and run a few errands and it's so interesting because actually you know that is that's free so that's a win in the sense that like maybe we overcomplicate wellness sometimes and turn it into some kind of complex paradigm that we need to like engage in and forget about just the functional aspects of of life and well-being um and over it in that sense um Yeah. You know what? Like it's slightly harder to fit in like a positive morning routine. I've only just this week started to practice yoga again. And literally this morning, as I lay in Savasana, I had Lockie like smacking me in the face and like sitting on my stomach and I'm laughing and definitely not in any kind of meditational state. So it just looks very different. Uh, But You create a new version of well-being and actually it was really fun to kind of do a yoga practice and constantly be stopping to like make sure he's not pulling the TV cord or, you know, to like reach to grab something out of his mouth or, um, you know, yoga is not the same as it used to be. And exercise is not the same as it used to be. And sometimes you don't have time for a healthy meal. And so, like, you eat a bowl of crisps for a lunchtime snack. And um, I guess I give myself permission, as I said right back earlier in our conversation, to feel no guilt about that and to take this as a season of my life. And I'm so grateful that I had that wonderful season up till the age of, you know, I was 30 when I had Lockie um, and or 33. And I had a lot of years of just being self-indulgent, which were wonderful, you know, where I could get up and meditate and journal and go to a yoga class all before nine o'clock and be at my desk ready to do a full day's work. And I don't have that luxury at the moment, but that doesn't mean that it won't come back. And it also doesn't mean that I'm not, as we said before, able to find joy and peace and well-being in different versions of you know of being active or being healthy Uh, but it doesn't also mean that i shouldn't prioritize that that i think is the challenge sometimes of parenthood or, or motherhood is feeling okay to prioritize it over perhaps that special sacred time that you have with your child and everything begins to feel like a bit of a trade-off, you know, like half an hour at a yoga class is half an hour not spent connecting with him, you know, and um, I suppose that's part of the balancing act of pursuing your own needs and also pursuing the needs of him uh, and I think it's about looking to the future too isn't it so for me to focus and prioritize my health now means that I'm going to be or have the capacity to be a much more generous parent and available parent from a, the perspective of health and well-being in the future than you know a tired cranky old woman with lots of ailments and no
0: availability to to support him that makes sense yeah totally and I guess one thing is an exercise regimen the other thing is I guess you've been doing this from a six-week old where I guess having a nanny was was partly a a, also a contribution to your wellness it was I need to this not to to consume my whole identity so I'm gonna choose this and that's important for me and And I guess it it would have impacted your mental well-being if you hadn't have made those choices really early on. And one aspect is, oh gosh, I used to do yoga three times a week and now I don't do any. But actually, there's probably so many other practices that you're doing without realising that are all contributing to you showing up as that best version and and future-proofing yourself to be even better when you're older. So... We're coming to the end of our time, which I'm sad about. This has been so incredible. I wanted to get a feel for your view looking forward. So looking forward at your career, looking forward at your family, navigating it all. Loki's just turned one. What's your view as you look forward? How do you feel about it?
1: Hmm. So going into this year, 2022, we had, um, Jamie and I had this theme of the great consolidation. And what that meant for us was a lot of simplification of our life and our business and uh, how we do things. And that desire was from a place of wanting to create a spaciousness. Uh, When I looked at my calendar, I used to feel overwhelmed and, to be honest, in a good way, I liked the intensity of having back-to-back everything, meetings, events, clients, whatever. Uh, And since becoming a mom, I want that less. I want spaciousness. I want to feel present. I want to get good at specific things and not try and be you know, a jack of all trades or, um, you know, a master of many different things. So the great consolidation from a business perspective was very much about simplifying things. And that's kind of happening in the background and something I'll be able to talk about um, in the future. But it's really been kind of a call to arms to, for us, ask ourselves, you know, who do we want to spend time with? How do we want to spend our time when we have free time, what do we wanna be doing in that time? How do we wanna raise lucky? You know, How do we wanna structure our lives? Um, for us, there's a desire to be able to spend time in Australia each year. So that led to some decisions around the digitalization of our businesses and making them very flexible, having remote teams. So I guess when I look to the future, it is about simple, simple, efficient, lots of automation, Um, I used to thrive in a sort of environment of spontaneity and, um, you know, surprises and unexpectedness. I used to love that. And actually now I tend to cling more to routine and systems because I know that with that you can create space for some of that joy of spontaneity. And that, frankly, like when you have a little person in your world, like they thrive on routine and structure. And I think we needed that in order to be able to get the things done that we want to get done. So we are quite routine. We are quite structured and we're making decisions and taking action at the moment to simplify a lot of the stuff happening in our business as well, um, which has been very difficult and meant some very hard decisions. But... I know is kind of taking us in that direction of spaciousness and freedom that we, that we desire. And that freedom is not something that we're working towards. It's something that we're presently embodying as much
0: as we possibly can. Wow. What, what a beautiful way to end. And I think lots of new mothers and even mothers to be people that, that have the foresight of wanting to be a mother, you know, it's not common that you hear someone say, and working towards spaciousness and freedom. When they think about that world, those what those two words don't necessarily immediately come into mind. So it's amazing to have your perspective on that being a focus and and thinking how other people might be able to adapt to it to a similar way of thinking. So, Lauren, thank you so much. This has been incredible. It's amazing to talk to. An entrepreneur who sort of created their own rule book around these things and look every single person is different and has to do what feels right for them but seeing a rounded view hearing a rounded view hearing yours in particular is is a great way to help people figure their path out just a little bit better to continue thrive in their personal and professional life and I think that's the ultimate goal for all of the ambitious women out there so thank you
1: absolutely thank you so much I've loved the conversation it's been a blast
0: thank you so much for listening if you liked this episode please don't forget to leave me a quick review and subscribe it helps us reach a bigger audience of women more than you know and If there is an awesome individual who needs to share their story on this podcast, I would love to hear from you. My details are in the description below. I will see you next week.